Lord Jesus, I, uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us spiritual eyes, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord. Help us understand your mission, Lord. It's easy to look back, but even help, uh, help us understand your mission for us today. What is it? How do we participate in it? What are you calling us to do? Lord, give us a glimpse of, of, of greatness today. As you're showing us what it means to be great in your kingdom. Lord, I also pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, Lord, as we've been shaped by the world's view of greatness. Help us have, have your view, your kingdom view. Help us lay down our life for your kingdom glory and for the good of others. Bless our time today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I, I read this interesting, uh, I'm reading this book by Tim Keller. Uh, it, it's, uh, a, it's covering the book of Mark. And there's this really interesting chapter in there where it, it begins to talk about greatness and power in, as, in the context of this story. And in there, uh, this historian, Andrew Walls, uh, makes these observations. And, and the big observation he makes is that that Christianity moves. The center of Christianity moves while the rest of the world religions have largely had their center remain in the same place. For example, Islam started at Mecca and people still make pilgrimages to Mecca. That's where Islam, the center of Islam still is there, although it's, it's spread to other places. Uh, uh, Hindu, Hinduism, started in India, and it's still predominantly a Hindu religion. Uh, Buddhism started in the Far East, and it's still predominantly in the Far East. But Christianity's center has moved over time. Christianity started in, in Jerusalem with the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? With, with the early church receiving the Holy Spirit. And then through persecution, it began to spread. And the, the center of Christianity eventually moved to, to the Mediterranean world. It moved to, to Rome, right? And it was in that world, world that area for, for you know, hundreds of years. But then, again, Christianity eventually moved to, to northern Europe and eventually to North America through colonization, right? And that's where the, the center of Christianity has been for, for thousands of years. But what... what people are beginning to notice is that the center of Christianity once again is on the move. Center of Christianity is on the move. And I've got some statistics here. What we see is that in the 20th, 20th century, Christianity declined, and it's barely keeping up with the population rate. But in, but in uh, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, it's been growing up to 10 times the population rate. All right, so... So, so Christianity is flourishing in other places in the world while, while it is dying in our own country. More than 50% of Christians in the world now live in the Southern Hemisphere, is what, uh, what stats say. And so in the next 50 to 70 years, the, the center of Christianity is predicted to move away completely from, from uh, you know, North America and, uh, and other European countries. And so... What, what they seek to do is to explain why is the center of, of Christianity changed? Why does it move? So Andrew Wall says here that, 
The heart of the, the gospel is the cross. And the cross is about giving up power, pouring out resources and serving. And he says that when Christianity is in a, in a, in a place of power for a long time, we begin to lose the, the radical message of the gospel, right? The, the, the understanding of that we're sinners and, and that we need a Savior and, and that and the cross is lost in that country, in that, in that uh, area, because Christianity becomes to be a, a nice, safe, moral religion about being, just about being good people. And what happens is we tend to turn inward and become self-focused, and, and it becomes about us and, and our comfort and our, and our glory and our, our own, uh, you know, just living a, a good life, right? We, we tend to turn self-focused, and that's what, I mean, that's really the pattern we see in the Old Testament with Israel, right? In the Old Testament in Israel, what we see is God, God blesses them, He saves them, and, and there's this revival, but eventually the people turn to idols, Right? They get comfortable. They turn to idols. And it's just about religion. And when they turn to idols, they turn from God and, 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 and until some kind of suffering, some judgment, some kind of an exile, something happens to bring them to a point of, of repentance. Right? That's what the, the pattern is for, for, for Christians, for, for God followers, is to make it about me. Right? So when it becomes about me, that's where Christianity dies in those places. And so what they, what they observe is that Christianity always moves away from power and wealth, right? It always moves away from power and wealth because, like we saw last week, power and wealth can block us from humility and dependence on God. That's what we saw last week with the rich young ruler, right? We see this picture of children coming to, coming to God like children, humble and dependent, and then we see the rich young ruler who's, who's really religious and good and, and has wealth, but he, he walks away from Jesus, right? Because these things can block us from, from trusting in God, humble and dependent on him. And so you, what you'll notice is that the place where Christianity is flourishing is in places of, of great persecution, in, in, in places of, of trial and suffering and hardship, because those people are forced to put their hope in, in Christ, to be humble, independent on Him. And, and, and they're not so self-focused as we can become here. So, so that's, that's what we're going to see. So last week we saw the kingdom ethics on money, right? This week we're going to see the kingdom ethics on power and greatness. Jesus is continuing to disciple and prepare His disciples for His mission. Now, you'll, there's this interesting thing I have to point out. In the book of Mark, there's three passion predictions. There's three times that in these last few chapters that where Jesus predicts that he's going to die on the cross and rise again. There's three of them. All right? And it would seem, why, why are these things so redundant? Well, what you'll notice is after every passion prediction that Jesus makes, the disciples have a great misunderstanding of his mission. So the first time he tells them about the cross, they, they, Peter rebukes Jesus. The second time, the, the disciples are on the road and they're arguing about who's the greatest. And today we see them arguing or, or, or indignant at each other because James and John 
are asking for the, the places of glory. Right? So they're misunderstanding the kingdom. They're, they're still thinking of a, a worldly kingdom, worldly throne, not this eternal kingdom. Right? They, they're struggling to understand uh, Jesus' you know, path of the cross and suffering his mission. So, and then all three times after they have this misunderstanding, Jesus uses it as, as an opportunity to teach them, to disciple them. And, and so the first time he tells them that, that, uh, that uh, following him is denying yourself, taking up your cross. The second time he tells them that it's losing your life for Jesus is gaining real life. And, and today, greatness is being a, a servant, a slave of all. So the reason I tell that story about power and greatness and how Christianity is on a decline is because we've lost that. We've, we've be, had, we have a, a worldly view of power and greatness, and Jesus is trying to reshape that through these scriptures today. All right, so we got two. We're going to look at two different uh, accounts here. There's the request of James and John and, and, the, and the request of blind Bartimaeus, which I'm going to read that in a little bit. And so we have these two requests and these two different responses. Let's look at the first one. So the first one is the bold request of James and John. They're called the, they're the sons of Zebedee. Uh, their, their nickname is the sons of thunder. That's the nickname Jesus gave them. Uh, they were part of Jesus' inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they come up with this, you know, this pretty bold request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, right? If someone asks me that, I'm like, uh, well, it depends on what you're going to ask me, right? My first flinch is no, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, or if I was Jesus, I would have probably thought, who do you think you are to ask me something like that, right? That's a pretty bold request, like just do whatever we ask of you, God. Well, Jesus has a, a gracious response. And, and what they're asking there is to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in his glory, right? So they're picturing Jesus as this earthly king about to set up this earthly kingdom, restore Israel, and we're going to sit on the, the right and left. We're going to be his, we're going to take the top positions of power next to Jesus, right? And Jesus has an interesting, almost confusing response, right? He says in verse 38, can you drink the cup I'm uh, about to be baptized or drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? Strange statement. But in the Old Testament, this, the picture of this cup was a picture of something allotted by God. So, it, it, and most often it was wrath of God, right? Something allotted by God, given by God. And, and uh, so if you remember when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, God, take this cup from me if there's any other way, right? Take this cup. So it's something that God has allotted to him. And, and the, this idea of, of baptism, is a, it's a picture of immersion. That's what baptism is, right, when you're immersed in the water. So this is immersion into suffering. So Jesus is saying, are you able to, to take the suffering that I'm about to endure that's been allotted to me by God? That's what he's talking about. Are you able to suffer with me, right? And these guys... Uh, you know, they're, they're not called the sons of thunder for no reason. They, they say yes 
right? You would think the, the correct response would have been no, but they say yes, that, that they can do this. And, uh, and Jesus basically says, you will. You will be immersed in suffering, right? You will be immersed in suffering. And, and this is a reminder that discipleship entails suffering and sacrifice, right? And these guys did face suffering, right? Uh, J- uh, which one was it? James? James was the first disciple to die. In Acts chapter 12, it records that Herod killed him with a sword. John was actually the only disciple that wasn't martyred of these two, of all the disciples. He was the only one that wasn't martyred. He was only boiled alive in oil, right, and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Right? So they, they did they did face much suffering in their life. But here's the irony of their request. Where was Jesus most glorified? Was it on an earthly throne? Right? Where was Jesus most glorified? Jesus was most glorified. Or where, where was the, the glory of God's love shine, shined the brightest? Right? Where did the glory of God's justice shine the brightest? It was on the cross. Right? The place of Jesus' greatest glory was that cross where he, where he died for the sins of mankind and, and that's the cross and and the, the ironic thing is that at that moment when jesus was crucified there was one person on his right and one person on this on his left right he was hung with two criminals right the, those seats of glory were allotted for those who had been prepared for beforehand right they weren't for james and john and so jesus doesn't grant their request because they don't know what they're asking for. You know, they don't know what they're asking for. They're, they're thinking, they're not thinking the glory of the cross. They're thinking glory of earthly power. And, uh, and so what, what happens is, after that, we see that all the disciples, they grow indignant. They're angry at James and John. I imagine, I imagine they're, they're angry because they want those seats, right? They want the glory. They want the power. They don't get it just as much as they these guys do or miss it so jesus calls them and he refines their views redefines their views on power and greatness and i thought it was interesting here in this story that jesus doesn't get angry with these guys right I, I, me with my my uh impatience i would have been fed up like gosh the third time i've said this and you still don't get it so jesus is very gracious with them and uh and and I think it's because nothing's wrong with power, right? Just like we saw last week, nothing's wrong with money. It's about what you do with that money or that power. And that's what Jesus is trying to, trying to do. So he doesn't rebuke greatness. He redefines greatness for them. So he tells them in, in the second part of verse 42 that worldly rulers lord power. They exercise authority, right? The world seeks to, to get their own way right so they use seek power and control to get their own way that's what the world does right if i have power if i have wealth then i can have everything work out the way i want it to work out i can be in control of my own world and so worldly power seeks to to dominate over people to control people right 
to lord over people. And Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. And, and he, he begins to tell them now his, his kingdom ethics of greatness and power, right? He says this, that if you want to be great, right? you want to be great, be a servant, right? If you want to be great, be a servant. But if you want to be first, like you want to be the best, you want to have the, the, the best seat in the kingdom, he says, be a slave. Do you see that? So you want to be up here? You better go all the way down here. And that, that would have been a very uh, shocking statement to them to say you have to be a slave, right? They're, they're, I mean, think about all their view of, they would have saw the, the rich young ruler last week and said, that's greatness, very moral, very religious, and has a lot of money, right? And Jesus is saying, no, you need to, to become a slave of all people. And so the world's view of, of greatness is upside down, right? God's view of greatness is right side up, right? The world is what's broken. The world is what's fallen. The world is who has got it wrong. So, so here in God's kingdom, the greatest are those who use their power to serve others, right? And uh, it's not about having the most money, being the best looking, being the most talented or most successful. It's about being humble and serving others. And, and, the, and the good news in God's kingdom is anyone can do that. Anyone can do that, right? The, the powerless, everyone has something that they can offer to someone else, all right? So Jesus, what we see here is that Jesus defines and embodies greatness, right? He, he uses himself as an illustration in verse 45. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Jesus embodies greatness, the, the most powerful one, right? The eternal king, the, the creator, lays down his life, becomes a human being, goes from riches to rags to serve others. That's true greatness. That's true greatness. And he gives his life as a ransom for many. Ransom means to, to buy a slave or a prisoner. Right? Jesus buys us out of slavery to sin. In the payment, his own life on the cross. Right? So he exemplifies true power and greatness. He's calling us to trust him and follow in his example. And it's only when we truly understand the gospel that we're able to now lay down our lives for others. Right? If, if, if we don't get the gospel, no way am I going to lay down my life for others. But if, uh, but if Jesus has laid down my, his life for me and I, and I understand that and I'm thankful for it, right, and I have the Holy Spirit inside me, it makes sense to, to give my life away for others. Right? I love others because he first loved me. So we can go low because Jesus went to a low place for us. All right, so let's look at the second request of blind Bartimaeus. It's, it picks up in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So this second request of blind Bartimaeus, is it's meant to be a contrast story of, of James and John, right? It's, it's meant to be a, a, a picture, right? We see, we're going to see the opposites of, their, of how they come to Jesus, right? Blind Bartimaeus gets Jesus' attention as, as he shouts out, Jesus, son of David. If you'll notice, the, the disciples just call him teacher. But blind Bartimaeus calls, calls him son of David. Right? He was using a messianic title for Jesus. Right? The, the, the promised son of David was the, the, was the promised Messiah, the, the eternal king who would reign for all, for, forever. So this, this blind guy had, this, had some faith. For, for some amazing reason, he knew who Jesus was. He recognized who Jesus was even though he couldn't see. And so Jesus uh, calls him to himself and and asks him the same same request, or the, he gives him the same question that he, he said to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Right, The same request. But what you'll see with Bartimaeus, he's, his request is a humble one, and not a self-exalting one like the disciples, right? He's just asking for something humble and normal. I just want to see, Lord. I just want to see. And, and Jesus grants his request. He says, your faith has made you well, right? He heals him, and, and he goes from blind on the side of the road to, to on the road following Jesus, right? So we see that God exalts the humble and humbles the proud, right? The, the blind man is exalted. Think about this. It's not very often. This is very rare that happens when, when a person's name, someone is named in the Bible. Right, this, this blind man on the road gets his name in the Bible, blind Bartimaeus. You know, he, he's exalted by God. He'll, re, he'll be remembered forever for his faith. Right, that's Bartimaeus. Right, when we get to, into God's kingdom, we'll meet Bartimaeus. Right, the blind man who had faith. Well, think about that. He's exalted. That's, that's pretty amazing. We'll, we'll say, God, we, I read about you in the Bible. Think about it. His, he, he's healed. Right, God exalts him. Well, well, he doesn't. He doesn't grant the request of, of the disciples, and even the fact that that Jesus stops for him. Right, just some random dude on the side of the road. Jesus stops for him and, and gives him that time. And James and John, on the other hand, are, are humbled. Their request is not granted, and and they instead they they receive a, a lesson on true greatness and power. All right. So what does this all mean for us? That's what we have to ask, and that's what I want to end with. What this means is that I want, and I think what I want us to do is I want us to pursue greatness. I want us to pursue greatness. There's nothing wrong with pursuing greatness, right? And I and I think it's it's kingdom greatness, right? And so, and greatness is found in. Let me remind you: is laying down what power that you have 
for the good of others, right? The power that God has given you, using it for the good of others. It's not losing that power. It's, it's using that power, all right? So the first thing I, I want to remind you is uh, one thing I've talked about for, I think I've talked about it a couple times is this idea of fighting for obscurity. I want us to fight for obscurity. And what that means is that we should, we should fight to just be obscure. Obscure means it's this idea of, of doing things that are unnoticed. When you don't, you're not going to get any praise, any recognition. It's doing things that no one else wants to do. So, for example, at your, at your home or your, your work, you're going to do the job. You're going to clean up the mess that everyone leaves around. And no one else is going to do it, but I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to seek praise. I'm not going to seek recognition, but it's, these are opportunities to, to serve and, and, and to go low and die to self, right? Because myself wants everyone to serve me, but know what? I'm just going to serve others, and, I, and I'll, I'll get, I'll, my treasure will be laid up in heaven. Pursue obscurity, you know, at home, you know, clean up the, the, the mess without complaining, right? No grumbling, no complaining. And it's just a, I think it's just a good practice to do, to stay humble, right? To stay humble, to remind us ourselves of that, that I don't need to exalt self. I don't need everyone to serve me, but I, I'm called to be a servant. And the second thing I want us to do is I want to use, use us to use our power for God's kingdom. And so I really want you to think about this. I'm going to give you a, a few questions that you should write down. So I want you to begin to think about this and even talk about it in your RCs. All right? I want us to use our power for God's kingdom. That's true greatness. All right? So what power do you have? All right? What power do you have? Some people have, have power. At, at, they have maybe have a good, powerful position in, a, in an organization. Some people's power is is they have a lot of money, right? So they have to begin to use those. How, how do I use this, maybe even relational network connections? How do I use these things that I have for the good of others? You know, and some of us might not have those, these big, huge power, but we all have something. We all have talents. We all have gifts. We all have abilities. Something that we can use to help others. And so I, I just try to write a list down of, of some things that we might have. Some, some people are good at fixing cars or fixing houses or fixing stuff. That's a power that you have that you can use to help others. Right? Maybe you're good at fixing computers. You can use that to serve others. Right? Uh, you, if you're uh, good at budgeting, maybe you're good with finances. You can use that to serve others. That's something that God has blessed you with to be a blessing to others. Right? Or maybe you, you love teaching. Maybe God's just made you good at uh, teaching or, or playing an instrument. Maybe you're good at cooking or organizing or fundraising. There's things that we're all good at, so we have to begin to think out, what are, what are, what are my strengths? What has God given me that I can use to serve others? I, I, I don't need to, I'm not just going to hoard this and use it for my own myself, but I'm going to use it to, to help others. All right? So, so that's the first question. What power do you have? What privilege do you have? And then the second question is, what do you love to do? Sometimes 
Uh, I think sometimes we think serving just always has to be, you know, we connect it with the cross, which is like dying, right? We think serving always has to be dreadful. And it's always got to be like, I'm just breaking my back and I'm sweating, right? But serving doesn't always have to be that. Serving can be awesome. It can be a blessing. It can be a great joy, especially when you can find, what do I love to do? What is the thing that just God's put in my heart? I really just, uh, it's a, I just love to do this with people, right? Sometimes serving is going to be hard, and we need to die to ourselves. But I think most of the time it can be a blessing if we can, we can get what we love to do and use it. All right. Uh, and then the third thing is how can you use these gifts to serve others? Then you got to, all right, so I know what, what power I have, what privilege I have, what abilities I have. I know what I love to do. Now how can I use these to serve others? Sometimes those can fit and line up and you can use them in the church. But the church isn't all of God's kingdom, right? God calls us to go into the world everywhere we go. Right into our workplace, right? Maybe into other nonprofit organizations, to our neighbors that live across the street, right? Where are their needs that I see that are around me, and and how can I can I meet them? Right? How can I be His kingdom representative? And so that's what I want you to do is figure out how to use your power for God's glory, right? Pursue greatness. Pursue kingdom greatness. And I want to end with this quote right here. This is a a Tim Keller quote. He says, Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe what you believe will soon soon be unable to imagine the place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not only for yourself, but out for them too. When they voluntarily begin to look up to you because of the attractiveness of your service and love, you'll have real influence. It will be an influence given to you by others, not taken by you from others. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I I, I just pray, Lord, I truly pray that we would uh, spend some time thinking about that, Lord. What, What do we have that you've given us, that you've blessed us with to steward, Lord, for your kingdom? Help us, Lord, to not be about ourselves and our own glory and our own kingdom and our own comforts, Lord, but, but to really look outwards, Lord. It, it truly is better to, to give than receive, Lord. Joy is found in, in pouring out our lives for others. Studies show that, Lord. We see in America a lot of people miserable and depressed while we're the most prosperous nation in the history of the world and it's because we've been taught that life's about ourselves, lord help us really see the the true joy the fulfillment lord that's in you and and, and that we can pour out to others lord in jesus name we pray amen